Hello, I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. Welcome to the True Alignment Podcast. Where we talk about all things alignment. All in, of them. In life and work and business, um, in the world as a whole. That's right. Where we tackle any subject of alignment. There are no boundaries to this conversation unless you decide to plug your ears. So, Edgar, we're live in the Gronowski Innovation Incubator in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. All on one breath. Well done. Thank you. And, um, you know, this continues our kind of global trek. So we're also live from San Francisco, California. Yeah, with Lisa Rosetto. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Hello. How are you? Uh, we're doing We're doing well. And uh, just uh, for everyone uh, that's tuning in, if you uh, would like to know more and... Uh, of course, live as well as, as a follow-up. Uh, any thoughts, questions, comments that you have, please email us, info at truealignment.com, uh, and we will uh, respond, as always, in a timely and quick fashion. Any and all questions, thoughts, comments are welcome. Lisa is the CEO of G. Hensler uh, Company, and uh, you ought not be surprised if somewhere in your wardrobe, in your household, in your past, in, in terms of uh, leather accessories, you there's good likelihood that you've owned and worn or used one of the products that comes from G. Hensler. Uh, she's a fashion designer, graduate of Fashion Institute uh, in New York, and um, also uh, is, is very, very uh, um, committed committed to bringing really great quality to the marketplace and her products and services. She's also the founder and CEO of 49 Square Miles, which we'll uh, let you tell us more about, Lisa, and really just fantastic, again, leather accessories, mainly handbags that are just of, of exceptional quality and design. Thank uh, you. And yeah, and she lives outside of, uh, outside of San Francisco, where she's headquartered, and my experience of you, Lisa, is that um, even if we're texting or I have called you at 2 a.m. in Hong Kong, that is a true story. And you you always seem to be somewhere globetrotting, and, uh, which is, has been your lifestyle for, for a number of years. And it's also how you do business. You certainly are a member of the global business community. So it's a pleasure to have you with us. And so the first question to tee up our conversation is just simply to is more of a statement, a request, is to ask you to uh, tell us a little about the origin of how you think about what you do and how deep-rooted um, your alignment is to, um, to your heritage of Italy and the art and fashion and creativity that comes from there. So uh, start us off. With All right. Just, well, just a little you. question, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> Uh, well, first, I'll tell you, I grew up in New Jersey, and my mom and my mother's sister and my grandmother were true fashion mavens. Um, they were fans of this woman. Uh, her name was Bonnie Cashin, who was really the first sportswear designer in the United States. She's the one that invented um, the Coach Classic Turnlock hardware. So anyone that's ever seen a classic Coach bag... Um, we'll recognize that. And it was started by Bonnie Cashin. But what most people don't realize is that she also designed sportswear, separates that were, you know, took women instead of wearing dresses and uh, hose and pumps, they could wear sportswear, slacks, 
uh, a nice top and she did these beautiful leather coats and my what was the what was it i just want for reference what uh, where uh, on the timeline does that fit because uh, I, I immediately say, thought uh, about uh, about uh, what's happening in the U.S. Open. Uh, no, I want to say like the 1960s, uh-huh. 60s, early 70s. And um, so they were pieces that were unique and beautiful, but uh-huh. also things that lasted a long time. As a matter of fact, I still have probably a dozen of those pieces in my own wardrobe um, that I've held on to and I still can wear today. And when I wear them, people are blown away and say, oh my God, an orange leather coat with with brass turnlocks. And, um, you know, her pieces are in museums. So anyway, my point is I was exposed to that at an early age. You know, my grandmother never wore a dress after uh, probably, you know, 1965 when the pantsuit came out. And I was just exposed to these really um, brave, adventurous women who had a lot of fun and they really... um, embraced their wardrobe, you know, and it, and it trickled down, you know, in the fourth grade, uh, time magazine had, uh, the maxi coat on their cover. And I told my mother for my birthday, in November, I wanted a maxi coat. So she went out and found me a maxi coat as a fourth grader. So I think that the fact that I always enjoyed fashion when it came time to work in high school, I always worked in retail stores. And then when it came time to think about college and what I wanted to study, it really was a pretty easy decision to go into fashion because it was something that I enjoyed and it combined both the creative side and business. Um, and I was, you know, not only creative, but I was analytical. So I went to school at University of Delaware and did a program that was heavily rooted in business. And then I took my junior year at FIT and was able to have amazing opportunities to see speakers like Donna Karen, Perry Ellis, um, Oscar De La Renta. I mean, Mm. they would come in and speak and it was phenomenal. Um, We got to work backstage during fashion week, helping the models get dressed. Uh, So I was able to combine the academics of Delaware with the incredible opportunities that New York presented in the fashion community. Yeah, what I capture, I mean, there's that, uh, there's a uniqueness there. Um, it's not always that creatives or high creatives or uh, couldn't speak to the idea of also being analytical at that level. Is the immediate thought that comes to mind. And obviously it has a lot to do with your success. The other thing I think of is the awe um, when you're at that age to have icons like that. To, oh. Just in your presence, it must have just been. It was incredible. Yeah. You know, Instead of going to class and hearing, you know, a, a PhD professor, no disrespect there, but these were people in the industry that were. At <laughs> None the- whatsoever, <laughs> Ken. None. And then he asks me, why haven't you gotten your doctorate? Now you know. Like, I did like her until she said that. <laughs> no, but it's like. Just, it, when she said that. <laughs> But seeing these people and listening to them and having them tell their stories, um, incredible. So when I finished school, I got my first job in the industry in New York um, and started as a buyer and worked for a group of department stores. Uh, And then in the 80s, there was a lot of consolidation happening. And the group that I was working for 
called Associated Dry Goods was bought by May Company. There was going to be this merge. And I was told I would have a job, but I didn't like the uncertainty of that. So I went to work on the other side in the marketplace. So I, I worked for a small manufacturer. And that's when I first um, started doing design work. I mean, I did some design work for the retailer, but this was truly a handbag company and I was doing design and at the same time helping them move their production from California to Asia. So I spent a lot of time in Asia and moved all the production and any fabric and got them set up as an importer. So that kind of started the whole, um, my exposure to just working overseas and, and you know, really focusing on sourcing and where to get things made. Um, a couple of years into that, I was contacted by uh, someone at Esprit, and Esprit was based in San Francisco. It was in the 1980s, started in the 70s, but really in the 80s, was they were in their heyday. And I had never even been to San Francisco, but I thought, you know, sure, why not? I've lived in New York five years. It was, um, it was grueling living in New York City, being poor. And um, as much fun as I had, I thought, well, sure, I'll, I'll go check out San Francisco. And it was incredible. I mean, Esprit as a company was one of the most progressive companies. They were ahead of their time. People talk about tech companies now. Well, in the 1980s, Esprit had their own cafe with full-time chefs that would cook fresh food. Um, all the food was subsidized so you could go and get grilled shrimp over arugula for lunch and pay a couple dollars uh the founders doug and susie Tompkins, were both very active socially um not socially going out but it, it as part of the community esprit uh played a very big role and i can remember susie Tompkins having gloria steinem come in and speak to us she had a friend of hers, uh, remember 1980s was the AIDS epidemic, and she had a friend come in who had AIDS and speak to everyone about, you know, it's okay to touch people, you can be around people with AIDS, it's not, you're not going to get it, and um, it was really groundbreaking for the time. Um, and the whole sense of design in everything they did. I mean, we had, we had a bathroom dedicated to a transgender employee. And this was 1987. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a remarkable alignment uh, lesson just in that in of itself. When you think about uh, founders, owners uh, running a company and then being able to, it sounds like you, in your, a total, you know, the employee experience, very much a total experience when you think about what it is that you're doing for the marketplace, for the customer and the environment that you're doing it in. And then Mm -hmm. the direct connection with what's going on around you day in and day out to the values of the organization. By the way, I just want to go back to that for a moment in Esprit. If you can recall uh, what what values they espoused and was there something that uh, that re- related to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion? And because that is really forward thinking when you go back to these. I mean, that's pushing the envelope. Well, it was def- it was you know, founded originally by a woman and then, you know, her Mm -hmm. husband joined. So it was very um, female centric. Um, And at the same time, I mean, there were all kinds of people there. And not only that, they had an interesting model where there were international offices, one in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. one in Dusseldorf, Germany, 
and I had the opportunity to work with all of those groups. So, you know, I went from, um, I had traveled to Asia quite a bit in my previous work, but then I, I had counterparts in similar roles uh, to my own in Asia and then also in Germany. And I had never worked with anyone in Germany either. And just the being exposed to the culture, the cultural differences and how people work and understanding we're all, we're all trying to get to the same goal. And I think what they focused on was, um, you know, there was a, a sign above Doug's desk that said, no detail is small. So it was attention to detail. Um, everyone was a part of this, of the whole. Um, and the fact that everyone could contribute ideas too, you know, it was a, it was a very um, accepting environment. And I did, I worked with people from all over the country, people with different backgrounds. And um, as I said, I think they were really ahead of their time because when the tech companies, well, the nineties when Abercrombie's offices, everyone talked about that. Yes, it was, it was, they had a cafe and, uh, and then with the tech companies uh, having food and um, right. things like that, this was really the start of that. And it was done just because that's what they believed was the right thing. You know, if you wanted to take a sabbatical and go um, explore some part of the world, they had these incredible trips. Um, they'd also let you take time off to do things like that. So it was just a really interesting place to be and a great exposure mm -hmm. for me as a as an employee and then as a future business leader. Yeah, I, I want to pick up what Edgar was saying, Lisa, a little bit about the um, the alignment. So so much in there. So you know, if I remember in that time, Esprit was pushing a lot of design boundaries. Um, yes. So, right, I mean, you, you brought, um, you brought something to empower the, the freedom of the customer. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned those trips and, and the ability to, to contribute. Um, you know, we have a running joke here on the podcast that I bring in a movie reference and, you know, immediately the first thing when we got on, you know, the devil wears Prada was coming, but, um, this is, this is opposite <laughs> here, right? I mean, um, because that was, that was uh, tyrannical. Um, yes. and, and you're talking about uh, a model where everybody is paid attention to, right? So uh -huh. you empower the customer with this um, really progressive design, which mm -hmm. I'll contrast with what you said earlier from those memories of the, the original coach class from Bonnie Cashin, right? I mean, and so I hear you start from that very traditional um, mm -hmm. classic stuff to a company like Esprit that was was not classic, right? I mean, they were really progressive at that time. Right, and I mean, the, the workspace itself was uh, was beautiful. It was an old, um, I think it was some kind of a mill or something, but it was a you know, brick building, very mm -hmm. high ceilings, um, skylights, beautiful Kaleem rugs. So aesthetically, you came to work and you were proud to, to go to the space the way you were treated there, you know, all the desks were made by hand by a woodworker. And I still no detail too small. Yeah. And I kept a couple of those pieces or, you know, when they closed those offices, they sold everything. So I went to the auction and I bought, I actually have the work table from the Esprit design room is in, is in my belt room over here. Um, and then at home I have a desk and I had another desk that I sold to a former 
a spree employee, Mike Seberg. So it's it was an amazing place to work. And I think for me, coming from New York and, and East Coast born and raised, it was a complete turn what you think you know, you know, on its head because <laughs> it was, I mean, we all worked hard, but it was still a, just a very different environment and experience. And I realized, wow, it wasn't, I wasn't just going to stay here a year. This is someplace I could, it really reflected my own values and the fact that I love to be outside. And I could, if I'm in San Francisco, I can be outside 10 months out of the year, pretty much 12, but there, you don't get that back East and New York was tiny little offices, no windows, work, work, work. Uh, so this was a really sort of a radical transformation, and yet they managed to get things done. Yeah, that that difference from the freneticism uh, of the East Coast. Yeah, I'm from the East Coast too, and you know I've gotten soft out here in Colorado, but um, and I can feel the stress as soon as I get off an airplane back east. Like everybody's in a hurry, everybody's mad at you. <laughs> like I don't. It's kind of uh, you know, you really gotta you gotta fight for space. Uh, yep. And there's a real great lesson in in when we think about you know such a hot topic that we're dealing with today is is mental health and mental health in the workplace, and how that translates into how do you create cultures of well being, mm-hmm. and it, and this is a great example of what a culture of well being can look like. And from what I'm hearing from you, uh, the the likelihood is the work didn't just get done. I mean, that the performance was was high. Yeah, it was. It was. And I think, you know, it was a great group of people who shared similar values. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting how I don't know if you've had the chance to watch the movie that was just made this year. It's a documentary about Doug Tompkins, who was the, you know, was a husband and wife. And after his spree, Doug went on to um, create the national park system in Chile. So he started by buying up land and then more land and more land and and created a national park system for Chile and now into Argentina. And it's, I think they said at the end of the film was the largest single individual contribution of uh, land donation ever in history. So it's, it kind of, it's an interesting transformation going from the fashion industry to that. And yet he was always very much about um, wanting to give back and and do the right thing and no detail is small. And when you see that film, it is really, I felt at the end, a sense of pride that I had been at least a part of, um, part of, part of that. So it was a real it's purpose cool. in that, um, that showed up both in the company as well as then in the work followed that mm-hmm. followed. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, take us to the next place in your journey. So the next step with that was the the market was changing. Esprit's business had started to mm-hmm. um, be challenged, and there was this whole movement coming in the industry where uh, Mickey Drexler went to the Gap and basically made the drastic change that no one had ever done. And instead of carrying branded apparel in Gap, said we're going to make everything Gap brand. And he did that transformation, and it was phenomenal. And right about that time, George Hensler, who I worked with at Esprit, had said to me, you know, there's this there's this movement going on, you know, what would you think of doing accessories for The Gap? And I was like, I think that would be a great idea. So he called Mickey and uh, Mickey was like, sure, come on over. So I left Esprit and George had left maybe a month or two before I did and set up this company uh, to basically be the accessories 
arm for these for started with Gap, um, where these are large apparel companies that have very little experience in accessories, which is you know leather and just different shapes and materials. So we started with Gap in 1989 and through the early 90s, and it was a really good business model. We did the design, we did the manufacturing, we sold it to them, you know, based on what they ordered. So we weren't holding inventory. So after a few years, we're like, well, this is working with Gap. And at the same time, the rest of the industry was following that model. So people like Express, Abercrombie, um, American Eagle said, huh, we're going to do our own brands too. Mm -hmm. So we used that same model and we expanded our account base. And at a certain point where, um, so we got to where we were, we were pretty, we were doing well. And then um, George Hensler, who's 15 years older than I am, I kind of got wind of, he was thinking about selling the company. And by that point, I was the president of the company. I had the relationships with the buyers because that's really what it was. It was relationships. It was, they had a trust that I could bring them product that was saleable, priced right, fit their brand DNA. Um, and I had those relationships and I wanted to continue to do that. And I didn't want to go work for someone else. So I said to George, how about you give me a couple months and see what I can do? Cause he didn't think I could do it, but, um, with some help, I, that's a, that's a pretty big lever right there. Uh, to well, feel, I mean, it's quite a challenge. It was, especially when the owner, a lot of times, I think it's the case, an owner has a, an inflated idea of what their company is worth. So it, it really came down to, okay, let's look at, let's bring <laughs> and see what this company is really worth. And then if, then if that's something that I could um, take on, figure out how I'm going to do it. So that's what, what I did. And I sought the help of a friend who worked in M&A. And so sure enough, the valuation that he came up with was substantially less and um he helped me find and your you consultant know, friend yeah came up yeah, with I mean, was I, less I than what mm -hmm. yeah it was 2004 and it was you know an sba i got the maximum two million dollar loan from the sba which was incredible um and then i got a lot of additional financing because it was a lot more than that but i will tell you the first few years when the business was very good, I was able to pay off that SBA loan and I paid back the bank loans and little by little chipped away at any debt that I accumulated so that I was in a much better position just so that if something did go awry, I, I could survive. So I would say one of the first big decisions was in addition to the vertical retailers that we worked with, um, we were also working with Target, which you know, big box stores have a different business model. And I had Edgar come in and we did an, uh, an alignment session several days and looked at every single client that we worked with, how we work with them, what the, you know, the downsides were, what the upsides were. And what we determined at the end of those couple days was that we were doing business with this one big box retailer who required us to hold inventory. The risk was much higher the margins were ultimately much lower. And so we made a difficult decision to walk away from that and focus on what we'd been successful with. Um, so 
we went in and knowingly took a huge revenue hit with the understanding that we had to really play to our strengths and try to make sure that what we do as a company is aligned customer wise, you know, staff wise, um, how we created the product. So it was a big, a big decision, but one that certainly I think, uh, as I, as I hear you replay it, um, I, I'm taken she, by. She blamed it on you. Just so she did blame it on me. Taking that hit. <laughs> so uh, two two thoughts ran through my head. One is alignment, and just from a practical business standpoint, something that we always talk about is making sure you got the right revenue. You know, revenue is just not revenue. It's got to be good revenue, and there's bad revenue. There's that. The other thing is I'm reminded of is, um, and this is uh, just a. The solid truth here is uh, the courage that you had to do that. Because uh, when you think about it, usually people will, ver- will ride out the, uh, uh-huh. the the revenue stream. They'll ride it out and sometimes even be in, in denial about uh-huh. the impact it's having and um, just keep moving with it. So now as I hear you tell retell the story, it's it's really, a, it's um, yeah, a great amount of courage and, and to be able to, just confront that truth and then to be able to act on it. Because we always talk about how important it is that uh, confronting the truth is uh, becomes a necessity, especially as a leader. And you have to be able to step into the where the misalignments are, be truthful about it, and then and work through it. So yeah, uh, my compliments to you going it, back on that. Sometimes what seems like it would be the easier thing is to write it out. Oh, let's just see where it goes. Mm-hmm. But the downside is then when, when it, if it doesn't go your way, which it, it would not have, you have no one to blame but yourself. And then if, if you take that energy that you're focused here and put it over here, what is that going to look like? So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I've always been one to try to keep moving forward and not all, you know, not every decision is going to be hundred percent right, but sometimes lack of decision is a worse outcome. So. so we see this all the time, Lisa, in our alignment work is that um, Edgar mentioned the right revenue, mm-hmm. but the reversing course is often the hardest thing. And that really does take some courage. You said something earlier that um, when George Hensler was talking about selling the company, you had the relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we, as we think about this in a business school setting, you know, the relationships with the big box stores, there's pow- so much power in that relationship that is lopsided, um, yes. right? The yeah. major retailers on the planet have actually such a lopsided relationship with their with their suppliers that there no longer is the same relationship that you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. And I find that the relationship aspect of it, you know, the trust that you build with a a merchant or a design team um, or a retailer is when you're just looking at price alone. And that's what the big box stores started doing is having these blind things where you just submit what your costs are. And how can you possibly evaluate just on a, a numerical scale? Because it just, there's so many factors involved, you know, does this person understand my business? What's going to happen if, something's late or we they want to react quickly and there's a lot of different levers that impact the business that really 
I think the people that work with me consistently and have known me for a long time know that I will do whatever it takes uh, to make their business successful. And that's, I don't think you're, that's appreciated. And it's, they use the, they throw their term around partnership a lot, but really what I found is there was a program with a big box retailer that could have put me out of business um, had they canceled it. And there's also a lot of turnover. So the, there's no, it's difficult to get the, those relationships going with them. And, um, you know, it's, it's important that we choose our clients and the, the accounts that we work with where it is a, a good revenue stream. And it's not always a big revenue stream. Some of them are very small, but you see the, the potential down the road. Um, it might be a, a project that's really interesting to me, something that I know I can do a good job with. So it's not even necessarily the size of the revenue. It's, is it a good fit? Are they gonna be good people to work with? Um, and I can usually tell. <laughs> I'm going you know, to hit, hit Edgar under the table because this is about the time when he usually says alignment. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, it's very interesting having done this as long as I have. And you meet people and you have meetings and then there's follow up. And it's the same on the factory side with me. I can pretty much tell if a factory is going to follow up and get me what I need and be a good partner. But um, the sometimes you get a, a client and you think, wow, this is going to be great. And, but then there's these little red flags that are like, yeah, something's not, something doesn't sit right. They're not valuing my time. They're not, um, they only want a response when they need a response, but when I need a response, they're nowhere to be found. And there's a lot of different little red flags, but I've gotten to know them fairly well. And um, every once in a while, it'll be like, hmm, yeah, saw that one coming. I'd love to go back in history and just be able to find companies like yours that are making those kinds of decisions. I worked with a, um, a, a family-run meat company back east, oh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Walmart was courting them, oh. but, the, but they would have had to change their entire um, way they manufactured uh, to meet the requirements of Walmart. Yes, and so they and they walked away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think so, so wisely walked away. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a big lever. I, I uh, recall working with uh, Ferrara uh, Confection and you, you talk about, you know, really large companies and, and still there's that leveraging of the big box of, of where it, it really is about data. It's, it doesn't really hold the relationship or perhaps mm-hmm. the, the belief is that the relationship has a different definition. But it also speaks very well to where we are in uh, the history of our society where there's such an emphasis on data and the use of data that we, that we have this uh, tendency to separate it from, from you know, the human aspect of humanity. And when, in fact, the value of the data is to, to be able to serve humanity better, to be able to serve um, one another in a in a in a uh, in a better way, and yet we have a tendency to 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 move past that all too quickly or to ignore it. So it's a, g- a great set of lessons that you're uh, um, that you're uh, bringing light on here, and that we need to we need to keep them in mind. Yeah, Lisa, a question for you. I mean, I um, because Edgar and I get to spend so much time in this space. You know, we get a little um, behind the door. See, um, perspective on how business operates. So a lot of the American public doesn't 
either doesn't or can't realize that a lot of the products they buy are actually not made by the company they're buying them from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what, how, you chosen, you chose to go down a path where your product was going to be sold inside of another retailer. Um, and under a different name. Under a different name. So tell me a little bit about, um, why is your ego not in here? <laughs> where, where do we see where do we see the alignment to that desire show up through forty nine yeah. square mile? Yeah, so so part of it is you know when you get a, a business going and it's and it's got traction and it's successful, it's very it's got the flywheel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you it, you stick with that. At the same time, the challenge for me personally is that my personal taste level and what I'd like to do in the industry is, you know, I, I am Italian, uh, Italian American. I have gotten to know a lot of the family owned and run tanneries in Italy, Tuscany specifically, where the true, you know, vegetable tanned, pure, natural leather comes from. It's the art. It is. It's the art. They are the true artisans and other people make leather. There's leather that comes from all over the world, but the true creative artisans are based in Tuscany and it's just the best quality uh, hides in the world. So I wanted to be able to, um, to use that leather and create products that were really beautiful. And at the same time, I've got this other business where, you know, I, I've, it requires my time. So I have a small brand, um, 49 square miles, and I haven't compromised on that. The materials I use are Italian vegetable tan leathers. Uh, they're beautiful. And I do it in, in a way that I can still manage both businesses. For a while, I was really trying to promote that a lot more, but it required trade shows. This is all pre-COVID, um, and it required a lot of attention. And I at the end of the day, I sort of scaled back on the wholesale aspect and focused on the core business, the private label, and went just direct to consumer on the brand. And right now, I'm still doing the brand and we still, um, we're trying to, through social media, gain awareness. And my daughter's working with me on that. She's very good with photography and yeah, she's studying- beautiful materials yeah marketing and social media and um fashion editorial so she's working on that and we're still doing it and it it's so what that does it also gives my customers a chance to come into my showroom and see wow this company knows their materials because look at these beautiful you know they can do that and then i can do sort of a a more moderate version, um, take some of the details and some of the, the looks and things, uh, at lower price points and, and bring that sense of fashion to the, mm-hmm. to the mass retailers. But it's really for 49 square miles, sort of, a, a project that's close to my heart and my heritage. So uh, speaking of things that are close to your heart, I'm going to uh, flip another page in your, in your bio uh, that speaks to your family. Uh Um, You've, you've now shared with us um, uh, just the wonderful story of your success in uh, with Hensler and 49 square mile and what you're doing there. And somewhere in that timeline, 
uh, <laughs> at university and then New York and then the move to San Francisco, there is a marriage and there is children. Huh? And so um, tell us a little bit, bit about that experience and the challenges or the, I should say that, you know, how it is that you managed what potentially could be a host of misalignments and, and conflicts in in terms of that, you know, we like to say the balance. <laughs> tell us talking. about your marriage and then tell us about conflict. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the integration here of, of all that time and energy and, and commitment to what you're doing and creating success and then also having success as, as, a, as a mother. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so a little bit about that. <laughs> no, I think as with any, any project in life, it's not, nothing that – that I did on my own. I mean, I knew that. Okay, well, we all know that part of it. <laughs> no, but I mean, if I wanted to, I I wanted to have children, and I wanted to uh-huh. um, raise children and be present at the same time. I knew there was no way I could do what I do with my career and do that without a strong support system. So I will say, uh, both my husband, who was worked in law enforcement and worked a you know, a a fairly normal schedule. Um, And then I had an incredible uh, nanny that came for 13 years every, every day or five days a week. Um, You know, it's never, at least in my case, it has never been easy. I have never felt that I was doing 100% my best in any area of my life because I was split whether I was traveling, when I would travel, I'd I'd try to get to an earlier flight to get home an hour or two earlier. So I'd be running through an airport. And then, you know, it's the heartbreak of, oh, they just closed the door. Or it's the, okay, I made it, but now it's 11 p.m. And this is before Uber, how do I get home and all that. So um, I sometimes say I spent my 40s feeling an incredible sense that I was always disappointing someone. That being said, you know, I do have, um, I have a great partnership with my husband in raising the kids. I have three children that have watched um, their mom work really hard and build something that I think is uh, meaningful. And that's something that not every young person gets to see. So I think that's probably beneficial, um, I hope. And um that's their experience. You know, their experience is always, you know, I was in a meeting the other day and uh, my buyer, the designer was saying she had Invisaligns and I said, oh, I had Invisaligns. And then I said, I'm so glad only two of my children needed braces. Now my daughter works for me and she's in the meeting and she looks at me and I said, you know, maybe she never needed braces. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, what are you talking about? I had braces for two years. I got them off the first day of high school. I was like, you didn't have braces. <laughs> Clearly then I knew she did have braces. I just never took her to the orthodontist. So it's like, I, the experience for me was. Um, and and they my like daughter has perfect teeth. teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that smile. If we walk by the school, you know, and I'm with any one of my three children and I say, oh, I miss taking you guys to school. And they're like, yeah, you never took us to school. And I did. I took them one day a week to school when I was in town. I know that I did. Got to be pictures somewhere. But so there is that I kind of get payback by them reminding me that I 
wasn't always around, but I did the best that I could. And I really tried to, uh, you know, I tried to be the best mom that I could. I tried to be the best uh, leader that I could. And um, I'm sure I, you know, some things I did well, and sometimes I didn't do so well. That's Lisa, just, thank you for being so candid. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I was just going to add, and, you know, if you want to be a systems thinking leader, uh, think of all the support mechanisms in your system. Mm -hmm. And so if, uh, you can step back from it and say, look at all the pieces that were put into place that worked. So from yeah. a system standpoint, you know, I think it's probably a good idea to acknowledge your capability in that to make sure that everything's working and uh, that your daughter winds up with a great smile. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Lisa, I mean, we're all the hero in our own stories. And, and you know, I just from the very start of our conversation today, I heard you talk about your grandmother and your mother oh. And your daughter, um, right? So immediately, like as I'm thinking about the movie reference that's going to come flying forward here, you know, I was thinking a very kind Hang of. Hang on, let me get my seatbelt. You got it. Yeah. Female empowerment. You guys want to guess at this one? A female empowerment film. I was thinking something along the lines of Hidden Figures, but that last little piece, um, you know, you, you, it was a very different kind of conversation. So I, I'm going to ask this of you: If there's a movie that you think of that describes you, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's an easy one. I said <laughs> in jest. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's like putting uh, yourself in the hero role. Right. We spent so much time talking about the 80s that you have a working girl kind of story, but that's not really what it was because you started right from the very get-go in fourth grade with that maxi code. And so, um, you know, in a, in a strong grandmother pushing fashion boundaries, um, right, that was the beginning of your story. There's something in there, I think, about the... Yeah, I'll have to think about that. Because if I think about who I I was explaining to someone who's quite a bit younger than me about how I think she was asking how I got to this point or like, did I know? And I was I said, I've always been like an explorer. I was always like I was always a kid looking out the window like, what's that? What are they doing over there? What's and, you know, looking at how people dressed and what people what people did and i would always say to my mother like what can i do what can i do and she'd be like oh, can't you just can't you just sit like you know everyone else can just sit and be quiet why do you always have to do something i'm like because i want to do something so i think part of it was innate and that's yeah. sort of what i was born with and uh the other part of that was just my experience growing up and I always saw myself in, in a work environment, in a, some kind of a leadership role and uh, not even so much that I wanted to be the boss, but I just never wanted to, um, I never wanted to have to ask anybody else for, to help me, you know. So. All, all of those combination things that you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, about the kind of, uh, the business and the design, the analytics and paying attention. You know, I would reframe the movie now that you, you shared that with us to uh, Moana. Yeah. <laughs> How about that one? These guys, you know, they're, they're amazed at my, my vast movie knowledge here. Scary, actually. But, you know, it's really, you mentioned Explorer, but Explorer Observer. And, and you know, I think that this is, you know, I think perhaps a magic ingredient for, for a work in alignment. 
because mm-hmm. you you must 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 be an observer of, of the people that work for you of the people that are customers of your business um, if you can't do that part um, mm-hmm. you're you're bound to find some misalignment and struggle there yeah, and it speaks Absolutely. to that idea yeah and then and then and then I was the, just gonna say I was yesterday in a meeting with a it, it was an operational thing, but I just have, had to be a part of it. And the person giving the presentation wasn't listening. He was pushing information out. And even when I brought up a question or a comment, it wasn't addressed. It was just push. I'm just going to push harder because she's she doesn't understand what I'm saying. When I did understand what he was saying, it was just so I think the curiosity and and getting to know what is it that your customer needs or is there something going on there that you should be aware of that is the dynamic changing is their leadership changing what does it mean is such an important part of business not just my business but honestly anything where you have uh, a customer uh employees it's it's sort of a almost like a sixth sense but i it's not even that it's really something you develop over time, you know, listening, observing, um, watching for clues. And you have to be open to be able to do that because not everyone can do that. And I think that's the downfall of some people, just like getting back to the right revenue. Some people get so blinded by the numbers. It's like, oh my God, we're doing, I mean, look at some of these tech companies or direct to consumer brands where they're doing millions and millions of dollars, way more volume than I'll ever do. And they're not profitable. I was like, how can that be? That's a, that's a thank you, Amazon, right? I mean, that's the, how you brought out that business model that you cannot be profitable for a long, long time. Yeah. There's a lot of them. And I'm always amazed. I'm like, wait a minute, you got $50 million from people. What, so what did you do with that money? How is it that you're not profitable? So it's might be an old fashioned way of looking at it, but, um, well, it's um, purpose. Yeah. I'm going to suggest it has so much to do with purpose because the underlying purpose uh, could simply be there to create something that I can, you know, it's a build and sell model very often. And, um, proof of concept that it can work and not always says that proof of concept when you're, uh, looking into the marketplace to create revenue and, and get as many customers as you can in a short period of time or uh, whatever your time frame is, I should say, um, without a concern over the profitability because you're going to try and demonstrate value in a different way. And so mm-hmm. whatever that formula is. But I think what I, what I uh, come back to in the way you're describing how you see the world and the people around you and this idea of ex- always to always being explorer is the incredible level of curiosity. And it goes back to what we, what we found, um, uh, this idea of a curiosity quotient, which uh, then is reflected in people's ability to succeed at their endeavors. And there's a direct correlation between um, the behaviors of curiosity and mm-hmm. success and performance yeah. And the greater your level of curiosity and how you behave in that way and how you engage the world through a lens of exploring curiosity uh, has a direct correlation to performance. And I, th- I think that's a really important ingredient uh, in leaders that, that you're alluding to. And it also speaks to um, different ways that you create value and explore what those possibilities are. And but, yeah, I think it is sorry, yeah. it's something that you got to question. I agree with you yeah. wholeheartedly because we've seen organizations that can't move quickly enough into the turn um, and, uh, you know, the equity turn or selling 
that implode. Yeah. You know, it's just not there, and all of a sudden everybody realizes it. They look underneath, you know, the cover, and boom, there it is, and then yeah. it goes, then it goes bad. There's a directionality thing here too. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm teaching a marketing strategy class in our MBA, and um, you know, we take on a different definition of marketing. That you know, the the role of marketing is to create value for the business, value for the customer, and value for society. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that that's pushes a lot of people to reconsider because the old model of creating value for society was, uh, well, I employ people, I give them a paycheck, they turn the economy, et cetera. And, and that directionality, Lisa, that you mentioned is taking things from outside in as opposed to going from in and going out, right? I mean, you mentioned it when you talked about that person in the meeting that was trying to push information to you. It was just mm-hmm. directional from inside out. And, and everything that I've heard you say, and Edgar, to your point about the curiosity quotient, uh, quotient there's, there's self-curiosity for sure. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, you have to let the world in for curiosity to be enacted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about serving society. One of the, you know, things that I struggle with is knowing what I know in the industry and you see... It's, it can be done in an authentic way, and there's a whole lot of it that's not done in an authentic way. You know, oh, we're whether it's radical transparency or people saying, well, we're giving this to, you know, we're giving this much away, um, or we're sustainable when there's so much misinformation about that, which is, um, you know, for example, I make leather goods, right? And, and I also, I use synthetics for some of my customers if that's what they want. But when people say, well, you know, I only use vegan leather because it's sustainable. No, no, that's inaccurate. Leather is the most sustainable because people eat meat. And, you know, 90% of the cost of a cow is the meat and maybe 10% is the hide. And otherwise the hide would sit in a landfill. So I can go in my whole big, big spiel, but I truly believe that. And I've done research and um you know anyway i think i think having a purpose where where you are serving society part of that i feel is educating people too letting them know what's what the real thing is um and the minute something doesn't sound like it's authentic you know i shut down i think a lot of people do so you've got all these wonderful lessons and all and i know that you've um been um You've been at Stanford and and sharing knowledge, and you've done of your fair share of mentoring. As you look into the future, um, what do you see your role being? I, I'm going to take it all the way back to when you were sitting in the uh, in the lecture hall or classroom at the Fashion Institute, and the icons would come in, and people would would you know, as as yourself experienced uh, a little bit of awe and just amazing learning that takes place from the lessons learned. Um, how do how do you see yourself in the future um, uh, furthering furthering your ideals and your thinking and and sharing your experience? I think I'd like to continue doing um, what I do on a small scale, as far as whether it's working with an intern or my daughter, my employees, um, my customers. And when I'm asked, I'm 
always happy to to go and speak to groups of whether it's about leather. I just did a seminar for about 30 people at one of our clients headquarters in Connecticut, um, you know, educating people. And uh, I think that I've gotten to a point in my career. I said this to Brooks, my oldest son, because he said, well, why do you know, why do you keep doing it? Well, here's why I I do something that I really enjoy and I still get excited. Next week I leave for Europe and it's the big leather show that they do twice a year. And I get to go shop in, I'm going to Florence and Milan and Stockholm. And I get so excited to see new things that are out in the market, whether it's a shape or a material or color direction, it really excites me and that, and it still does. So there's that part of it. The other thing is when you've done something for as long as I have, I feel like I've developed a really deep knowledge base and other people appreciate that. Um, I can speak to whether it's a student, a young designer. I mean, some of the merchants I work with are 25 years old. They're these young women that are, but they, they're really curious and they want to know, like, how did you, how did you start? Or why is this belt better if we do it in leather versus if we do it in PU? Um, so I feel like I've, I said to Brooks, I feel like my voice is heard and people respect what I have to say. And that feels good. And I still have a lot of energy. Um, I've never been the type of person, obviously, that wants to sit around because I'd be bored. Um, and so until a new adventure presents itself, I want to keep doing it. I mean, ultimately, someday, perhaps I'll be lucky enough to um spend more time in Europe. I'd like to do that. And I'm working on getting my citizenship. So that would be fun to do, whether it's opening an office in um, Milan or Florence or just staying there and, you know, working on the, on the raw material side or something. I'm not really sure, but definitely continue doing what I'm doing, continue learning and helping other companies grow their business. And at the same time, hopefully my brand getting it, it's kind of one of those things where organically people need to hear about it, get to know it and um, mm -hmm. experience it. Thank you. Yeah, and it's a great example of uh, taking passion and continuing to live in alignment to it and all the different things that you do. And that's well, throughout your, as a constant thread through your story. Yeah, and I think about it all the time when I get calls from new customers and someone says, oh, so-and-so, you know, um, I'm going to India at the end of October. And one of the factories that I was communicating with today deals with huge companies. So again, I was thinking, I'm not sure that's a fit. Like, I don't know that we're aligned because they're they're looking for the next coach or Michael Kors. And I'm looking for the more artisanal you know, small batch. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. It is. The, the world is changing. And I think, you know, you're in an amazing industry um, to be at the front lines of watching that change. I mean, it's not, it, you know, it begins with people's tastes, but their tastes are about something deeper about them as human, mm -hmm. um, how they're seen, how they're perceived. Um, you know, there's a wonderful quote, I think by the, by the Aspen Institute that everything about a, business um, defines us, right? Who we, who we choose to wear, what brands we align ourselves with. That is a definition of us as ourselves. Um, so um, Lisa, just thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks for helping. Yeah, thanks for world. joining. Yeah, and thanks for joining us today. Great conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you.
Uh, so uh, as we wrap up, I'd like to remind you all that uh, your questions, thoughts, comments, and, and if you have any um, questions or, or uh, comments for, for Lisa, uh, please feel free to uh, to send them to us, and we'll engage her accordingly. Um, Lisa, any uh, any plugs uh, for your your products or websites? Anything at all? Check out Forty Nine Square Miles. I mean, our website is up and running, and we're we've started to move more of our production to Italy. Um, we've always used Italian leather, but we're assembling the bags different places, and we found a great maker. Mm -hmm. um, who is a lovely older Italian gentleman who also enjoys salsa dancing with his wife, but he makes a beautiful <laughs> product. And so that stuff is on our website. Um, and I hope to do continue to do more with him. Lisa, where's the name come from real quickly? San Francisco is seven miles by seven miles. And Perfect. Paul Kantner from Jefferson Airplane once said that San Francisco is uh, 49 square miles surrounded by reality. <laughs> <laughs> Nice one. <laughs> Nothing like the starship. Let's That's all right. go together. Yeah. So, uh, again, uh, questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all at uh, truealignment.com, info at truealignment.com. And um, so we'll uh, bid you adieu and invite you to uh, join us again for our next True Alignment podcast. And with that, uh, we wish you uh, all, all good things and uh, live aligned. This is Edgar Papke. And this is Ken Sagan. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.